Amen. Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's a red one there, maybe near you somewhere. It's on page number 808. I'd like to talk to you this morning about the Holy of Holies for everyone. You know, you and I enjoy so much in God today. And it is a new day. Our Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, we are thrilled that God has somehow allowed us to live in these New Testament times because it's a lot different than it was in the Old Testament. I'm going to begin reading uh, in the last verse of chapter 8. That's verse 13. In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. That's the the law, the Old Testament law, obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. The prophet Jeremiah in in, uh, the previous uh, passage here was quoted by the writer of Hebrews and he took this section in Jeremiah chapter 31 and he quoted the prophecy of the New Covenant, the New Testament. And the New Testament had several features uh, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. First of all, uh, you know, the Bible says that there was going to be an interchange in the heart of people. When Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets of the Ten Commandments, they were written on stone. God says in my new system, they're not going to be written on stone like that anymore. They're going to be written on your heart. You're going to have not have to go somewhere to read them. You're going to have them with you all the time. And so there's an interchange. He says, I'll put my laws in your mind and write them on your heart. Then he says, you're going to be my God and I'm going to be your people. And what that means is he's, uh, God wants... In the New Testament, God wants to have a personal relationship with us. He he wants us to be close, up close and personal. That was different because in the Old Testament, you couldn't get up and close and personal with God. In fact, quite the opposite was true. You had to stand back. You couldn't get near God. And so that's the second feature. The third feature was that the knowledge of God was going to be pervasive. And whenever a person invites Jesus Christ into their heart... Uh, I'll tell you what, the knowledge of God begins to flow in a person's life because those laws are written on your heart and on your mind. And you begin to talk to people like God is really real in your life and he's just not a historical person. He's an experiential person. He's somebody that you experience in your life. And then certainly last but not least, and this we are deriving here from Hebrews chapter 8, the last part. Uh, He says, I'm going to be merciful to your unrighteousness, your sins and your lawless deeds. I'm going to remember no more. In the New Testament, the forgiveness was complete. It was finished. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is what? Finished. And so, and so Jeremiah, 600 years previous, prophesied the new covenant. That's what's coming in the days ahead. Verse number 13, the passage I just read to you, The writer says, listen, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. I spent four years in the Air Force trying to be an aircraft mechanic. 
And I think all the people around me knew that I was trying. But that's such a vast field, you just can't learn it in a few short years. So they didn't trust some of us four-year guys with many of the big jobs. We carried the wrenches for the real mechanics. And oftentimes on those jet airplanes, we would have to replace time change items. That meant that these, these items on the airplane only had a certain time that they could be used. And then they became obsolete. The time was up. We had to take them off the airplane. We had to replace them with something new, something fresh, something uh, improved. That didn't mean that the old item was bad, that was actually good for the time. And so I think that's kind of a good analogy to compare the, uh, the first covenant with the second covenant. Uh, the first covenant was good for its time, but the second covenant came along, and the second covenant uh, was God's new plan. Don't let the word covenant throw you. It simply means a system, a plan. God had a plan for the people in the Old Testament. He has a plan for the people in the New Testament. He had a system of worship in the Old Testament. He has a system of worship in the New Testament under the New Covenant. And here in this passage, he says the first has become obsolete and is growing old and is ready to vanish away. And what I've done is I have written beside that verse 65 AD because that's when we believe the, the book of Hebrews was written. And here the writer says that the first covenant is vanishing away. Now we know for sure that practically speaking, it came to an end in 70 AD. And here's the reason. Uh, Titus the Roman general came from Rome and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, flattened it. Destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and uh, did away with the opportunity for the nation of Israel to offer all the sacrifices that they had been offering at the temple. And so just in five years from the writing of verse number 13, the Romans were coming, they were going to tear down the temple in Jerusalem. And the system that they had been under for hundreds and hundreds of years stopped. No more place to offer sacrifices. No more place to kill the lambs. No more place to come before God in that system. It had become obsolete. Its time was up. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances uh, of divine service and earthly sanctuary. Now what he's saying here is in the book of Hebrews, he's, he seems to always be comparing the old covenant with the new covenant to explain to the, the, to the Hebrew people that uh, this transition was taking place. Listen, don't live in the past. God has a new future for you. And so he goes back to the past right here in verse number one and he says, listen, they in the past under the first covenant, there, were, there was a divine service, there was an earthly sanctuary of worship for the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand. And he begins in the next few verses to give us a, a small summary of what the tabernacle looked like. And this, people knew about this. This was in their brain. They had learned this uh, from their earliest catechism, what the tabernacle was all about. And then in verse number six, it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, 
the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Okay, he talks now about the priest. There were so many of them, these priests. And they would go into the first part of the tabernacle, the first section, and they would begin to, to serve the Lord in there in the tabernacle. And they did it continually, all the time, day and night. Then he goes on to the high priest in verse 7. But unto the second part, the high priest went alone. Now I've told you before that the reason why we call one priest the high priest is because he offered the highest offering of the year. You know, there were all these smaller, lesser offerings and sacrifices that were made. The general priesthood did that. But there was this high priest, and he came out once a year alone by himself on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And he went behind the veil, and he offered the highest offering of the year for the sins of the people and the nation of Israel. So here he says, it says he went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. Now Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest today. We don't go, we don't go and say, listen, Caiaphas was the high priest, or we don't say Annas was the high priest. We say Jesus is our high priest. Because remember last week we, we talked to you about the three offices of Christ. The first office, he was a prophet. The second office, he was a priest. And the third office, he is, what? A king. And so here, Jesus is our high priest. And uh, he's not offering any, any blood for his own sins because he was sinless, but he is offering his blood for the sins of the world. Look at verse number 8. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all, that's the holy of holies, was not yet made manifest, now watch this, while the first tabernacle was still standing. And I've written in the margin of my Bible, no access. While that first tabernacle that Moses built back in the, in the wilderness was still standing, there was no access to the holy of holies for you or for me. But now there is. Because this is the title. Not because I, that's the title. Because, just because it is. The Holy of Holies is for everyone. But the scripture here. And through the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Says the way into the holiest of all. The Holy of Holies was not yet made manifest. While the first tabernacle was still standing. There was no access for the common man. To the presence of God as long as the first system was in effect. Verse, verse 9 says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. Now this is interesting. One of the great downfalls of the first system, the system of law, was uh, that a person's conscience could not be cleansed. They could not have the cleansing that you and I enjoy today from God. The purity that comes through the redemption of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, these are two distinctly different systems. The Old Testament system and the New Testament system. Okay, let's go to our, our, um, our outline. First of all, we have a perfect sanctuary. And uh, this sanctuary, under the old system, was comprised of the tabernacle. We just mentioned that. 
And then thereafter, there was an updated version, which was the temple. Remember, King David was feeling kind of bad because he lived in a lavish mansion and God dwelled in a tent. So he decided, I guess I should build God really a nicer place than this. And so he started to gather the materials together and God said to David, listen, I'm not going to let you build the temple because you have blood on your hands. You've killed too many people. I'm going to let your son build the temple because he's a man of peace. He's going to be a man of peace. And so, um, and so the temple was built. Solomon's temple, it was called. Then Zerubbabel's temple followed, and then Herod's temple. But those temples, according to the writings of Hebrews, were only copies or pictures of the true temple that was in heaven. They, the word copy, verse number 23 there, is, means a sketch. And so people came from all around the world on tours to see the ancient temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a beauty to behold, but in 70 AD it was destroyed. As beautiful as it was, it was only a sketch of the perfect temple in heaven. And so in heaven today we have this perfect sanctuary, not the tabernacle, not the temple on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, but we have this temple called heaven. Not only do we have that, but we have a perfect sacrifice. Under the old system, they tried to do the best they can to come up with a perfect sacrifice. Remember when God told the people in Israel to get ready to, for the Passover, he said, I want you to go out and get a lamb without blemish. Make sure it's without blemish. And I'm sure they had trouble finding animals like that without blemish. You know, the animal may have looked good on the outside, but maybe on the inside something was wrong. You know, it's hard to find anything in this world without blemish, isn't there? And so they were just trying to follow the rules. They were trying to find a lamb without blemish. Now, we know that when Jesus came into the world, he was the lamb of God without blemish. He was the perfect lamb. But this, uh, this Old Testament lamb... Look at verse number nine. Could not cleanse the conscience through its sacrifice. It could not cleanse the conscience of those who brought the sacrifice, both for the priest and the people. And, and what that essentially meant was this, is there was no deep abiding sense of forgiveness with them. You know, our conscience, our conscience produces a lot of guilt for us, doesn't it? How many times do you feel guilted out about a lot of things you do? A lot of that determines by, is oftentimes determined by how you're raised. If you have a, a parent who loves you and says, now this is, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, uh, it, it uh, enlivens your conscience. You become a person with a conscience, quite a sensitive conscience. And you know when you have a sensitive conscience, when you, when you do something wrong, it's like, oh, this hurts. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I said this, boy, I wish I could take that back. I did this to that person. I wish I, wish I could change that. But you know, in the forgiveness of Jesus, whenever Jesus' blood is applied to our life, um, he cleanses our conscience at the deepest level and he enables us to go on because we don't have the experience of guilt in our life. I think you and I know well that guilt causes more problems in people's lives almost than anything. 
They're guilted out of our everything. Well, verse number eight seems to imply uh, that uh, there could not be this deep cleansing. And, and, the, and therefore, there was no access to God. You know, whenever I think of an Old Testament person, I see somebody standing outside the tabernacle. Listen, they couldn't even get in. They couldn't even get into the holy place, let alone the holy of place, the holy of holies, where God lived. They kind of stood outside with a guilty conscience. They knew they were doing the right thing, and it was the best thing that they could do, but it, had, it couldn't affect their most innermost being. Now, under the new system, though, it's different. Look at verse number 15, and let's read it. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption, that's the purchase of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, what does this mean? It means that under the new covenant, we are free from the penalty of sins that were committed under the first covenant. Now, you might say, I wasn't back there. That's true. But this, remember, the people that this was written to, they were back there. And so what he's saying is this, is there, were, there was penalty of sin under the old system. And when Jesus died upon the cross, he... He died to pay your penalty for the sins under the old system. Now, this is interesting. When you think of all the laws in the Old Testament, I know it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's like, you know, the Ten Commandments, they look pretty easy. I mean, not easy, but they, they're kind of compressed. There's not too many of them. But whenever you begin to think about all these other things that were thrown in under the Old Testament, it's like it becomes overwhelming. And there were so many penalties that were exacted because people broke the commandments of God in the Old Testament. And what, what the, first co the second covenant did is when Jesus died on the cross, the first thing that it affected were the people in the Old Testament. Because these people were waiting for redemption. They did not have it yet. They were waiting for redemption. And so... What this all means is this. One of the first accomplishments of Jesus' death was to redeem all those who had believed in God under the first covenant. Christ's death was retroactive. You might want to scribble that somewhere in the margin of your Bible. It was retroactive. These people were in waiting for the redemption that was to come in Christ. Because the Bible clearly states that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It only covered it temporarily. Retroactive, let's think about that. Um, you know, I know I hear people every now and then, and they say, you know, I applied for this, and, and they're going to start my payments, whatever it is. On July the 4th, I'm going to start receiving this amount, and it's really going to be good. And, and then to their surprise, they get a letter in the mail, and they and the letter says, listen, we're going to make this retroactive. And you're going to start getting payments for a couple years before this. And you're so happy you can't even see straight. It came out of nowhere. Retroactive. So the husband says to the wife, honey, buy that, go down and buy that car you want. Right now. Because the check's in the mail. 
Well, when Jesus died on the cross, all of these people in the Old Testament were waiting for this completed redemption. Now, in the Old Testament, we use the word atonement. It means to cover. And what this meant is that was God's system at that time. God says, listen, you come and sacrifice, and I'll cover your sins. Now watch this, until next year. And then you come next year, and I'll cover your sins again. But these sins could never be eradicated until they were adequately atoned for, until they were adequately redeemed. And there was only one price that God would there was only one price that God would accept for the redemption of man's sin. And that's the price that Jesus paid for our sin upon the cross. Now, on the Day of Atonement, it's interesting also to me that in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement was retroactive also. Because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was, pay, was offering the sacrifice for the sins that had happened previous, the previous time, up until that time. And so the typology works perfect. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the penalty, to pay the penalty for the sins of the people in the Old Testament. I think there was a terrific hurrah when Jesus died on the cross and somehow in paradise they heard the words, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai and it means paid in full. And see, what they were doing every year was making little payments on their salvation. Little payment here, little payment here. It was all temporary. There was, Jesus died on the cross, this big, gigantic balloon payment that was due and was paid. And so they were excited. So what is the penalty? Boy, let's look over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. This is one of the first verses I ever learned to memorize. 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. That's the payment. From as early as Genesis chapter 2, God laid down this law. In the, in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely, what? Die. Okay, that's the payment. And that means separation from God. That means a barrier between a person and God. The judgment. Now, I want to I do this quickly because we have to. We're running out of time here. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. What is, what is this payment that Christ died for on the cross? Not only, of course, for the Old Testament believers, those who believed in God, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of them. Uh, what is this uh, penalty? The penalty is judgment. And here's the judgment right here in verse number 11, and I saw a great white throne. I'd like to ask you to underline or circle that because we call it the great white throne judgment. That's the end of the line for those without Christ. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. Now the dead here refers to those who are spiritually dead, not just physically dead. And you might want to write in there Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, because the Bible says that when people are dead and they're separated from God, they're dead in trespasses and in sins. 
I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The books were open. This is the judgment that no one wants to stand before. And let me, let me give you this up front right now. No Christian will ever stand at this judgment. And here's the reason. Jesus paid our penalty for our sin upon the cross, and it is finished. Let's say it. It is finished. When Jesus died upon the cross... Uh, you just lost your ticket to this judgment. At this judgment, someone stands who has not received God's free payment of salvation. And the books were open, and I, you know, I could spend a whole lot of time, but I have none to spend. What are the books that are opened at the last judgment of the unsaved? I think the Bible is one of the books that will probably be opened. Because Jesus said, my word you'll face in the day of judgment. And, and, and let me throw just a little conjecture in here. Do you think maybe an angel could take the Bible and say to somebody that had rejected God's word, don't you remember this? Somebody came to your house or somebody shared with you these words. Don't you remember this? Just to remind them. The books are open. Well, to be sure, the Bible says here, the books of their works are open. God has a recording system. And he is recording those good works, bad works, all works in a book. And they'll have to face that at the great white throne judgment. But you know, the, the grand finale, the big book, is the book of life. And I think that's the book that, uh, that our names are written in when we receive Jesus as our Savior. It's called in another place the Lamb's book of life. And so what that essentially means is this, is your name can be on the roll of every church book in town, but if your name is not on the Lamb's book of life, you're in the wrong book. And so the books are open. And the Bible says they were judged according to their works. Let's read on. Verse 13, and, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What does this mean? This means that when a person dies one time physically, if they're not saved, if their sins are not covered in the blood of Jesus, they have to die another death. And that second death is an eternal death. And where is it? Look at the next verse. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the what? Lake of fire. The lake of fire. Wow, isn't that heavy? That's the destination of everybody who decides to pay for their own sins. You see, somebody has to pay for your sins. Because God laid down this land. He says, listen, if you sin, you die. Uh, and since he is such a righteous, perfect God, he always keeps his word. He doesn't bend the rules that he made. And so somebody has to pay for your sin, and so you can pay for it. And if you pay for it, if you pay for it, this is the payment that God will exact from you right here. Cast 
into the lake of fire. I didn't say that. God did. But the good news is this. Someone has already paid for your sins. And it was Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. He stepped up for you. And he had you on his mind. And he died on the cross for your sins. But that's not enough just to know that. We have to appropriate it to our life. He has to become our personal savior. You know, there are millions of people that come to church every week and they go to church, especially on Christmas and Easter, and they, they can articulate the doctrines of the church, but that won't save anybody. Jesus was, wants to be our personal savior, has to be our personal savior in order for us to be forgiven. And so, this, in the final analysis, this is the way it works. Somebody has to pay for your sin. And either you will, or you'll let Jesus do it. I, I was explaining this to somebody not long ago, and they said, boy, that's not brain surgery. <laughs> I thought, boy, that's a good way to put it, isn't it? I mean, that shouldn't be a hard decision to make, right? Either I pay for it, or Jesus pays for it. Well, I'll tell you, I'm glad, I'm glad for the day that I told the Lord, Lord, I don't want to pay for my sins. And I thank you for paying for my sins on the cross. And I come to you and I acknowledge that I should stand at this judgment. I deserve to stand at this judgment. But I accept your forgiveness that you offer me through the repentance of my sin. And I repented of my sin and I told Christ I was sorry for helping to put him on the cross. And he forgave me and saved me. And so now I can, uh, and he did this tremendous cleansing in my heart. You know, I've often wondered this, you know, I was saved as a kid. And I never committed any big horrific things, but I knew that I was a sinner. You know, that's, that's again, that's not brain surgery. Uh, but, you know, I've often thought about people that have lived so much of their life outside of Christ. How many bad things they've done, how many people they've hurt along the way. How can they go on? How can they go on knowing all of this? Well, whenever, whenever a person does come to Christ, what he does is when he washes our sins away, he literally does that. He washes our sins away and he cleanses our conscience. And I see people that have done the, the worst incredibly worst things that, that you could ever dream of, and they, they're able to get up and face life because God did a miracle on their conscience. He cleansed them in the deepest way, and he lifted that guilt, that horrific burden of guilt, off of them. Only God can do these things. Only God can do these things. And so what's this mean? This means that... Uh, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, he becomes our high priest. And we can uh, take him up on his invitation, and this is it. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, we don't have to stand outside the Holy of Holies. Listen, we can walk right in because Jesus, our high priest, is there Beckoning, beckoning us to come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's bow our heads.
in prayer. As we uh, wait upon the Lord this morning, I wonder how many people in the church would say, Pastor John, I, uh, I can remember a time, an experience in my life that I invited Jesus into my heart and I haven't always perfectly served him. Listen, let me tell you, nobody has always perfectly served the Lord. But there was a time when, when this came together, this picture came together for you and, and you opened your heart to Christ and you said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross, paying the price that I owed to God. And he came into your heart and he washed away your sins and your life hasn't been the same since. I wonder how many of us in the church could raise our hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I, I accepted Christ one day, somewhere, some point in time in my life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand visibly, but in your heart. If, that's, if you've done that, just raise your hand in your heart. That's all, not, not physically. And I'm sure there are probably a few people in our church this morning, you, you said, listen, I've never done that. I've never invited Christ in. I've never... I've never realized that I had to stand before even a judgment at the end of the day. I'd like to pray for you today that our Lord will forgive you and you'll give you the faith to believe in him as your personal savior. You need Christ in your life. If you're here and that's your situation this morning, I'd like to pray for you right now. And I, again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand vis visibly. But I'm going to ask you to raise it in your heart. Dear Lord, I pray for these who are raising their hand in their heart today and saying, Lord, I need you. I need you in my life. I, I, my sins are heavy. I don't want to stand at the judgment. I, w I want to accept your gift of eternal life. I deserve this judgment, but I accept your gift you, that you purchased for me upon the cross. Just invite Christ in now. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this day. I pray now that as we have our concluding song and as we sing, sing to your name today, I pray that for those who need to come and pray at the altar or have an issue in their life they'd like to bring to you, I pray that you'll give us freedom in the church to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, please, as we sing.